KBCS is powered by listeners just like you. Support this and other KBCS stories, interviews, and highlights by donating at our website, kbcs.fm. KBCS HD1 Bellevue, Seattle, Tacoma, a broadcast service of Bellevue College since 1973. I'm Yuko Kodama. The Washington Poor People's Campaign March to Stay Alive is in Olympia at the State Capitol Building this coming Saturday, March 2nd at noon. Next, Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown is the senior pastor at Seattle's Plymouth United Church in Christ and the faith tri-chair of the Washington State Poor People's Campaign. I spoke with Dr. Brown earlier this month about the history and the spirit of the Poor People's Campaign. As I understand, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spearheaded this movement. And tell me about how it started then and where it was heading. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King uh, Jr., of course, as a young minister, was pulled into the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s because he was there for the beginning and the impetus that began with the Montgomery bus boycott. He was a young minister in Montgomery. And so he was in the inner workings around racial justice, particularly for uh, Black folks, but I think Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian folks most certainly benefited from his work. And what I believe and what has been documented is that even with the major wins that happened with the uh, civil rights movement, the securing of the vote, the folks being made aware of the terrorism that was happening to so many Black folks in the South, the inability to get proper housing, proper education, all of those things were lifted up. Eventually, Dr. King discovered that it was an incomplete vision to believe that if this country secured racial justice for Black folks, that that would be the end-all be-all. He discovered that economic justice also needed to be tied to racial justice and that there was an interlocking relationship between the two. He would go on to add in race, class, and militarism, particularly around Vietnam War. But those are the two pieces, the racial justice and economic justice, that spurred and created the need for a poor people's campaign. When he was assassinated in 1968, he was there in Memphis to support folks around economic justice, those who were collecting garbage And in many regards, folks who study King and the civil rights movement believe that he became more at risk when he started to go towards economic justice rather than racial justice efforts only. So that's how the Poor People's Campaign came. It actually was his idea and came to fruition after his death. But he wanted to really lift up that poverty needed to also be our concern. That's where it came from. And it has continued in the hands of many people. So a lot of years passed between 68 and 2018. 
So the work has been in the hands, as I was saying, of many people who carried on uh, trying to discover ways to find economic justice and racial justice for folks who have been most impoverished and who are most vulnerable. But in 2018, the Reverend Dr. William Barber and Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris joined their efforts together to consider what a revival of the Poor People's Campaign would look like. Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris had been working through the Cairo Center, um, had been working on behalf of people who were poor and oppressed and had been well known all over the country for her efforts in uh, trying to raise awareness of people and what it means to experience poverty, particularly in this country that does a really good job of creating ideas like you know, poverty is just in the minds of folks, or if poverty exists, people have brought it upon themselves. Well, Liz Theo Harris was raising the carpet to say, this is not the story. It's not even slightly close. Poverty is contrived. No one deserves poverty. And then she joined hands with William Barber, who also was doing work in North Carolina. He had been well-known as an activist, as a public theologian, they joined forces to say, no, we need to lift up that when people are running for presidency, they can't even say the word poor. They don't even talk about anyone other than the middle class or, you know, those who are very rich or those who are in the middle, but those on the bottom aren't even spoken about. And so how will they feel empowered to go vote? Because they're not even being considered. How will they feel empowered to be a part of what it means to build a nation if they are struggling just to eat, if people don't believe housing is a right, if folks can't even get medical care without it being on the floor of some legislative body saying, hey, we can't afford this, but then checks are written quickly for a new war or a new conflict of violence. So they took it and said, let's do it. And it's called the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival. And it's kind because it's suggesting that once upon a time, <laughs> there was some sense that we have been unified and we have been concerned for the poor and we have been doing what we need to do to empower and to build the beloved community that Dr. King so eloquently spoke of. But here we are now and we are doing the work following the lead of Dr. King and so many others to try to lift and bring awareness to the fact that there are over 140 million people who are experiencing poverty in this country and that their voices have often been muted. They are not silent, they're speaking, but they've been muted and it's time to unmute them and to know that if they vote, we can change the trajectory of where we have been if they become empowered. There's these covenants to consider as you participate in the Poor People's Campaign and things like, I will speak truth to power and you know I will seek to defeat injustice, not people. I wanted to have you go through some of these and then this aspect of it, I believe the universe is on the side of justice. So having a little faith that this is gonna work out even though it doesn't feel great. I'd like you to speak to these covenants because there's a sure. lot going on in there. 
I want to say uh, to you, Yuko, that we are building a movement and not a moment. I'm not sure that as a nation, we are used to movements. It's caused anxiety and fear. But the Poor People's Campaign, as imagined by uh, Dr. Barber and Dr. Theo Harris and the many folks who are activists and organizers and impacted people, impacted meaning they are experiencing poverty themselves or have been impacted by racism or militarism or many of the interlocking things that disempower us. We have to have covenant to walk together because it's we don't rightly know how to be communal or to be collective. And this helps for us to have a centering. So when we have a covenant of nonviolence, it is absolutely a continuation of what King learned from Bayard Rustin, who picked up on Gandhi's work and the nonviolence of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And it's also, in my mind, an awareness of the fact that nationally, and I can say in, in, in Western societies as a whole, I'm not sure we understand how much violence is a part of who we are. It's in our language. It is in the ways that we deal with one another. There's so much implicit violence. So when you have a covenant of violence, when you're bringing together a motley crew of people who want to do good and justice in the world, but still we are impacted by the systems and by the atmosphere and environment of violence, we have to have a covenant of nonviolence. So you can start by saying, I will act with respect towards all. It seems like a non-brainer, but I'm not sure that if we went to 50 people, they would all have the same definition of what respect means. So you can have that as a covenant to say, nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. And I'm quoting, it is active resistance to the interlocking injustices we face every day. It gives presence of mind. And so that way we're able to say here, we have a common definition so that we know what it means to have respect. We know what it means to walk in love. It's not this Hollywood fuzzy idea definition of love, but it is saying that we will resist violence and love our neighbor, which of course is picking up on the moralism of love our neighbor as ourselves, which is true for Christianity, but is also true for many faiths. And it's even a part of moralism in, in people who do not claim a faith. So this covenant gives us a way to hold ourselves accountable, which we don't see necessarily in the White House. <laughs> we don't see necessarily in the Supreme Court or in other places of power, but it gives us a, a plumb line. It gives us a way so that we can be together without harming, hopefully without harming one another, and therefore planting the seeds so that we can uh, reduce violence in the world. And also so that our language is not used against us. If I am cursing or using um, words of violence, you can't hear that what I'm attempting to do is build a loving society for those who are the least, the last, and the most disempowered among us. It's saying that if you carry a weapon because you're feeling unsafe at a rally for poor people, 
that somehow there's a mixed message because we are totally lifting up that poor people don't have a safety net. They don't have anything to hold them together when they are fearful. And so what are we saying when we're carrying weapons to a rally that is, you know, supporting those who are the most disenfranchised and marginalized among us? So these are real things. And when we meet, when we plan, we go over these over and over again, not because we like to be redundant, but because we know that we need to have it at our center so that we can be focused on the work, the good work that we are called to do. A moment doesn't need to be sustained. You don't even have to be thoughtful, really, in a moment. And we create moments all the time. The Super Bowl was a moment. Um, when the Democratic and Republican parties come together, those are moments. But we have seen the difference between a convention and a movement where we can say that it began at the conventions, but it continued beyond. So a movement rather than a moment will continue to gain momentum, continue to gain energy. It will continue to look at itself in the mirror to see if it's doing what it was designed to do. It will stumble, it will pause, it will attempt to hear the voices on the bottom, those who are most vulnerable, that it will accept critique from them. So for instance, moment is saying, I just don't understand, you know, this thing around pronouns or, or you know, and I, I don't really understand the need for that. But a movement is, let's ask the people who are asking for this and who we're trying to be in solidarity. Let's let's talk to non-binary folks and to trans folks and to find out what is this about? And then if you have a discussion, if you make space for um, what I'll say testimony, because in the, the context of the Poor People's Campaign, that's what we often will lift up for those who are most impacted. When you hear the testimonies of the people, it's very difficult to argue with experience. And so a movement rather than a moment lifts up experience, whereas a moment will probably lift up scholarship. That's not to say that we don't do it in a movement, but it is to, it is to say that the scholarship of um, uh, Dr. Theo Harris and Dr. Barber and so many other people sits right alongside the story of a mother who was afraid that she didn't have healthy enough or enough in volume breast milk for her child because she was experiencing homelessness and was starving and was living out of her car. And that story has as much wisdom, is as much based in fact and in reality as something that has been researched by someone with multiple PhDs. And that is why it is a movement and a movement doesn't easily die. And a movement will always fire off for those who don't even think anyone is paying attention to them. It will fire off the energy 
and the force of love to gather in people who assumed that they were only born to die. It is just like the motion of the earth and we can feel its magnetism. So movement is thinking about it as this is bigger than me. And bigger. All right. And it is small enough for you. That's the other piece that you go, you fit in precisely like the best and most perfect laser cut piece of the puzzle. And it springs from your piece to honor the millions of pieces. And you are no less no worse, no better than any other piece, but you are integral and important as, as are all the other pieces. So that's the distinction also between movement and, and moment um, because there's always a, a, a threat of being lost in a moment. But in a movement, it's long enough and wide enough and deep enough for us to reach back and say, oh, we've forgotten our sibling. We've forgotten our person. We haven't heard from children. We haven't heard from the elders. We haven't heard from the indigenous. We haven't lifted up anti-Asian threats and violence. We haven't reached out and lifted up how people who are gig workers aren't thriving during at, at still after the pandemic that's what the the movement does it, it says yep you're you're a, a piece but it doesn't forget you would you want to say anything about the universe is on the side of justice or i will tap yes. into a power and soul force absolutely um one of the things I know as a person that lives in the world, as a person whose social location is an African-American woman who came from Columbus, Georgia, so the Deep South, who was born in 1972, so I have experienced my share of racism, sexism, classism, sizeism, and all the, you know, a few other isms that we can name. If you look at the world from a particular lens, you can think that whatever effort we're making is futile, that there's really not a reason to do anything except to perhaps just stay Black, pay your taxes, get a job, and die. However, there is a reframing that the Poor People's Campaign is inviting us to. And that is to believe and to know because there is so much experience and history of the fact that the universe is on the side of justice. When you begin a thing, you can try to look down the road and you don't see any glimmers. You don't see any green flags rather than red flags. You don't see any hope necessarily. However, if we believe the universe is on the side of justice, there is a practice that we must take on to continually revive our hope, to remember that there have been people over time who didn't have the resources, who didn't have folks who were cheerleading for them, who did the thing and thrived. And so believing that the universe is on the side of justice stands over and against what we see on the news every day. It stands over and against all of the heartache and pain that we see happening in 
Israel and Palestine right now. It stands over and against the fact that we don't even hear about Sudan or the Congo. And it reminds us that not to be ashamed that we aren't aware, but to get into the crack of the universe so that we can become perhaps educated. Yes, that's something we must do, but also compelled and um, incited to do justice and to believe even our smallest efforts will make the difference in the world. And to know that when we uh, rally together as we will to, you know, soon, when on March 2nd, when we come together to lift up the stories of those who are hurting, when we talk about the fact that more children are experiencing poverty than have ever has ever happened in history, when we talk about the fourth leading cause of death is poverty, when we do all of these things, we are just ringing the bell, not to make people afraid or sad, but to say, these are things that we can fix. These are things that we can tend to. These are things that we, places where we can make a difference. If we believe and look forward to the heart of the universe, that justice can be created and justice will be served. So that's that's what that means. And that's why it's an important principle, principle of this campaign, because we must believe that ultimately justice, justice will win and that it will flow like a mighty stream. Fundamental principles. It says this makes a lot of sense as you know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a big proponent of nonviolence and mm -hmm. uh, it's making sure of that. And you had already spoken to nonviolence being like an even more intentional kind of uh, way of looking at it. We have uh, aired Arun Gandhi's uh, talks, uh, the the grandson of uh, Mahatma mm -hmm. Gandhi, who who spent time with his grandfather and his grandfather taught him what exactly does nonviolence mean, which can be, you know, was anyone not paid well enough to make the pen that you're mm -hmm. holding or, you know, and that is violence. And, you know, I mean, all the many ways of thinking about how violence plays out in just anything that we own and, and do. Absolutely. Can, yeah, can play out, right? And also thinking about how Dr. King was so intentional about nonviolence, despite how violently they were being treated, including being killed in in horrific lynchings and, you know, all sorts mm -hmm. of very, very violent ways and how disciplined the nonviolence studies were in that, you know, you are going to take it and you're going to stand up, look them in the face and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um, and it just makes me think about how, how much discipline that does take. And in the context of today, how do we, uh, stay true to that or you know i mean the the whole nonviolence thing is so much bigger than just like no you don't hit people or bring a gun you know kind of sure. thing i i thank you for for that framing because one of the things that especially being a person who has lived in the pacific northwest for 20 years now 21 actually of as of february 3rd i think that there is a 
there's such a desire of the dominant culture uh, to be absolved of being named certain things. And I, I do not um, use or support the use of the word microaggression. I believe it should just be aggression because there's nothing micro about it, particularly when they build up and become cumulative. <laughs> and also the passive aggressiveness of um, that is often so pervasive in this area. I think, you know, folks can't really get their heads around the toll that it takes on, on those who are minoritized. Um, and I'm using minoritized rather than minority, saying that it is contrived and put upon rather than something that is in either of us or anybody that is like us. So people don't note and are not moved by the fact that people are impacted um, by such violence. And so in many ways, this this campaign, because we are trying to do a, many, a mighty work in the context of a, a voting year, in the context of, you know, many states that are producing laws that are um, violent in and of themselves. It's hard, it, it's not easy to, to have this kind of nuanced texture to think about what you've lifted up, but it is important for us to, to note that in many regards, this movement is attempting to speak to the individualistic violence that's implicit in how we are with one another, for us to realize that there is indifference in, there is violence in indifference and not wanting to think about something or um, measuring how much we talk about it. There's violence in the fact that CNN won't lift up certain stories um, that, you know, uh, we have to go searching for the information we need about genocide that's happening all over the world. There is um, uh, so much violence in the fact, and I'm saying this so carefully, there is violence just packed into the fact that many people so want sustained comfort that they don't care who is being harmed in order to keep that comfort going. And there is something that this campaign is, is, is standing over and against to say that I will be conscious of the pain of people who are doing the hard work to get food to our table. And for me personally, will eat prayerfully the grace that I speak before I eat is not so that people will think me holy or pious, but is for me to honor the workers, the people, the migrants, the impoverished, that often cannot eat the food that I do because they cannot afford it. So there has to be that level 
the tendrils of our morality have to go that deep into the work that we're doing to know that that what you spoke of of Gandhi's grandson absolutely right that we have to be that intentional in our nonviolence that we have to honor the earth to step lightly to plant more than we take to give more than we get to honor the voices, even the most quiet voices, and to know that there is truth. I could, if I were the one that created Instagram and for the former Twitter and all these other social media platforms, one of the things that has been so fostered there is the disbelief of story. Someone can say, I'm ill. And in the comment section, someone that doesn't know anything about that person will say, are you really sick? Or, you know, is this just you trying to get intention? Oh, here we go again. You know, all of these sort of mean spirited things, there has to be a recovery of our humanity. And so certainly what we're doing has a point. We are demanding rather than asking in some gentle way for the rights of humanity to be honored. But we're also asking for folks to recover their own humanity and to really know that when you're sitting on the bus going down Third Avenue and you see people who are slumped over that it is a thing you could say to say, we've got to clean this city up. Look at all of this trash and the needles and the, or you can say, look at the harm that we've done by continuing to build high rises with properties that even folks who are getting paid pretty well can't afford. And we've not done the work to house, to feed, to offer community and compassion to these folks, so much so they felt the only option they had was fentanyl. That takes it to a whole nother level because not providing access is then a form of violence. Yes, yes, that's right. I've worked in in the places where I was the person to assess someone, you know, in in coming in who is experiencing homelessness. And even in the way that you create your application can be violent, right? I need to see your ID. Well, guess what? A lot of people don't have IDs. Do you really need to see the ID? (laughs) Can you believe that you can serve someone named Sugar Bear as well as you can someone named Jane Doe, you know? So I I created my applications to say, I don't need to know your whole name. I just need to have a first name or whatever you want to be called so that you can have access to the shower, so that you can wash your clothes today, so that you can have a hot meal for the first time in two weeks. That's exactly right. And it happens on the micro and the macro, where people are able to, to live. How, how much is the housing? The fact that people can't afford food. How are we arresting people that are stealing food? I just know that there are countries in this world that have made commitments. We could look at Northern Europe who have made commitments to say, if food is stolen, we will not call the police. We will not arrest them because we are going to believe they are hungry. 
what would it take for us to be those kinds of people, that kind of humanity that would just believe that folks are are hungry, are thirsty, are in need of housing. I, I think we can be those people. Yeah. Okay. So like reevaluating what violence is. Uh, yes. In every way. Yeah. All in right. every way. I am not in, when in the context of this campaign, a, a Democrat or a Republican or a person who is claiming one way or the other, but in the context of this campaign, the people who are participating are honoring that this is not about left or right. It's not about Democrat or Republican, but it is absolutely at the end of the day about what is right and what is wrong. And we have to make some agreements that what some of the things that we have been doing has been about unhealthy tribalism and following particular colors rather than doing what is right. And if we look at civilizations that have found their end, the ways that we are moving are prompting the end of, of what we have known to be our civilization. We have been acting in ways that have been more about empire and less about being community. And so we need to understand that there is an end, a fast approaching end, if we continue to only be concerned about who is getting money, who is getting power, how we can keep corporations or institutions alive rather than how we can keep alive children and and babies, how we can um, make sure that black and brown women who are having babies will leave the hospital and actually be alive, how we can actually, you know, respond to the fact that we are rehearsing um, by way of the Japanese day of remembrance that we will never, never, never do incarceration again, but yet we have more incarcerated people than any other country in the world. So this is one of the things I want to be very clear on. We have been bamboozled to believe that if we vote the right way, things will improve. I'm sorry, that's not going to be our answer. We do need to have healthy leadership. We do need to have leadership that's willing to be held accountable. We absolutely need to have leadership, presidents, legislators who are held accountable by the people they represent. And also, it is our work to forge together to decide what is right and what is wrong and to pursue that vision, a vision of society where all people feel involved all people are beloved, all people belong, they are accepted, known, and heard. That is our point. That's the whole point of the campaign, if you've heard nothing else from me today. Could you speak to some specific uh, things that are going to be addressed during this campaign in Washington state and some of the um, impacted communities? Absolutely. Our state is interesting because we have more billionaires um, than we can shake a stick at. And I don't have a problem with billionaires, actually. 
what I have a problem with is that somehow uh, communally and collectively, we believe we have a responsibility to keep them rich while also not being concerned for those who are most vulnerable and um, most impacted. So we have to honor that indigenous communities in, in this state are experiencing poverty like we've never seen. We have to honor that we can go right down to Grace Harbor County, to Aberdeen, and experience poverty that no human should have to live with or through. We can go right down to Aberdeen, as I said, and note that even on cold days like today, there is no cold weather shelter. And that is shameful on the state of Washington with the amount of resources we have access to. This is not a resource issue. This is a lack of um, moral um, fire that would allow for us to um, believe that we can take care of some of these, these things. We have to honor that from Walla Walla to the Tri-Cities to uh, Bellingham and beyond, that people are experiencing poverty and it's so invisibilized by the fact that we have so much money, particularly in and around Seattle. So we assume that most people are doing well, but there are many people and poverty is growing, particularly since after the pandemic, the things that were in place to sort of empower and lift up like moratoriums on rent, like, you know, um, uh, income that would allow for us to participate and to get the things that we need, those things have gone away. And so it's almost as if we're just saying, oh, Washington state is okay. And we are not. What we are seeing around the state would make anyone cry that is concerned about the most vulnerable. And so we are wanting to lift up the voices of people, veterans, who still struggle to get the health care they need, children who are miseducated and undereducated, people who are out of work for the first time, who maybe 10 years ago also believed homelessness was something that you bring upon yourself. But now folks with multiple degrees who are living in RVs and cars and are seeing for themselves that capitalism creates poverty in such a destructive and violent way. And that when you lose your income or sometimes even before, many of us are a week, two weeks, three weeks away from experiencing homelessness. And again, you hear me saying experiencing homelessness rather than the homeless because we name people and sometimes that creates a stigma and naming people rather than who they are we um, name them by their circumstances, but homelessness is a circumstance and it's put upon so many people and it's not about bad choices or it's an incredible situation. So the state of Washington, we are really the most far West and far North state that is participating out of the 31 states in this country. We are speaking truth to power on the North steps of the legislative building at in Olympia on March 2nd at 12 noon so that we can lift up these stories, these issues from impacted people and say that somebody is hurting my sibling and has gone on far too long 
and we won't be silent anymore. That was Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown, the senior pastor at Seattle's Plymouth United Church in Christ and the faith tri-chair of the Washington State Poor People's Campaign. The Washington Poor People's Campaign March to Stay Alive is in Olympia at the State Capitol Building this coming Saturday, March 2nd at noon. A link to some information about this event will be at the KBCS website at kbcs.fm.